Hey, everybody. Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor. I'm here with Mark. How are you feeling today, Mark? I feel like Robert Smith at the beach. How are you feeling? Hmm. Robert Smith at the beach, tracking lots of sun with that black that black outfit of his. That yeah. black outfit. Uh, I guess my theme goes with yours as well, because I just said I feel waterlogged. Okay. Um, I have been trying to challenge myself to drink the doctor recommended amount of water oh in that sense okay yeah, <laughs> yeah this is a this is a quarantine activity of mine me and my wife like we still are going into an office but it's the only only the two of us there and we're like you know what when we're at the office let's try to drink as much as the doctor says you should drink so i have to drink like nine glasses of water a day oh I, yeah yeah i always heard at least eight or whatever eight eight times eight yeah That's, eight or I, nine or I've been on that life for a long time and yeah, you, you, uh, you have to go to the bathroom a lot. <laughs> oh wait. That's- so, cause you're, you're like more into like a few different of these health techniques than me per se, let's say yeah. a thousand times more into it. You're a healthy guy you've been doing this for a while. Yeah. Just that's, uh, yeah, that's been in my routine for a while. That was one so- of the first, that was one of the first changes I made when I was like, 15 or whatever i'm like i was i'm gonna get in shape that was one of the first things i did so let me say ask you this because some research says that actually the going to the bathroom every 10 seconds slows down because your body starts to use the water more efficiently is that true Uh, or you still just pee like a racehorse all day you guess that's a personal question you kind of still you just keep it you just keep (laughs) your eye on you keep your eye on the the tent right yeah (laughs) Oh God. All right. Well, I don't know if I can get used to this. Like I literally sometime in the middle of the day today, I was like, I'm tired and I can't drink this water. (laughs) Yeah. Well, right, right now I've got a Pilsner. So I'm Mm. not, I'm not following that. Um, but yeah. (laughs) Doesn't drinking a beer count as one? Come on. A little bit. I think it's the opposite. opposite. Um, but anyways, so this is episode number something, and all I know is that you're going first, but I yeah, came up with something, first. I came up with something to talk about in the beginning, or like a fun kind of thing, but it, it it will give away what I'm covering today, but I don't really care, I just okay. wanted to do something, but... Well, so I go first anyway, so maybe, the, maybe our listeners will They'll forget. forget, or you'll forget, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So if I said, okay, if I said it was a sunny day and I was going to meet you at the cemetery gates or something, and if, mm. if Keith, if I got to, I could frame it a little better. If Keats and Yates are on your side, who's on my side? If Keats and Yates are on your side, then Oscar, on my side, then Oscar Wilde is on your side. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that'll give away what I'm covering today, but. In connection to that, I found a online quiz for you that I wanted to run by you. It's from... that should be that should be like the password to a secret nightclub, <laughs> like a like an indie, a goth rock indie like sort of nightclub where it's like like you know the guy like he slides open the little window in the door and he says, "If Keats and Yates are on my side, then who is on your side?" And you say Oscar Wilde, and you get right into the club. Exactly. So I've got an online quiz for you from radiox.co.uk. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't pieced it together yet, 
uh, we're do playing a game called is is this a Morrissey quote or is this an Oscar Wilde quote? Nice. All right. Okay. I don't. I'm not. I haven't. I'm actually really interested that you went this direction because you know ever since listening to the Smiths being like a teenager or whatever. It's been a reading goal. Like, let's like I should listen to I mean, I should get into Keats and Yates and Oscar Wilde and whatever, because it's referenced more than once, I think. Yeah, yeah. A few times. Um, he, he, he likes actually, I'm going to send you oh, I, I fucked this up. I was going to send you a picture and be like, describe what you see. So <laughs> I'll just do that anyways. And send it to you right now, but I have to stall because I have to find it. Where is it? But anyways, so yeah, we're talking about Morrissey, lead singer of the Smiths. He, mm-hmm. they do a lot of literary references and stuff. Famously, like that. a huge asshole. Lots of people in the UK hate him. Yeah, he like he like grew up to be like a right wing nut, but that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> we can we can worship his younger self maybe as somebody. Don't, don't they say like technically every seven years your cells have regenerated and you're like a new human? Yeah. So we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. But, <laughs> we'll so, of the young Morrissey. So I, yeah, I found a, found an online quiz. I'll have, you know, I took it and I scored an eight out of 12. So you gotta see if you can beat that. All right. Eight out of 12. All right. So these are either quotes from Morrissey's autobiography or from Oscar Wilde. Okay. Uh, first one sometimes sometimes he is so serious that i think he cannot be well see now what i have to do is i have to i have to what every time you ask me a question i have to kind of like sing it in my head morrissey style say it one more time sometimes he is so serious that i think he cannot be well so it would be like sometimes he's so serious (laughs) i think it can't be well um no, I think that's Oscar Wilde. Correct. And I, I will also, for our podcast listeners, you inspired me. So why don't you guess what this is? <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I know it's a beer or something, way, but what kind? I, I'm diverting from the game completely, but I can't open a can without thinking of the Dark Tower quote when Roland opens a can of soda and says, so convenient yet so wasteful. Yeah. <laughs> What is it, by the way? I got this a is a, this is a Modelo Especial. That's a Pilsner as well, actually. Ooh. Yeah. All right. Uh, so you I send like me that. this photo. Yeah, there's a couple a couple pictures there. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and it's what is it? It's Morrissey holding the annotated Oscar Wilde. Exactly. Is it? Yeah. 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 All right. Let's jump to number two. You're you're one to one. Uh, the morgue yawns my name. The morgue yawns my name. Mm-hmm. Wild. Oh no, that's Morrissey. Okay. One for two. For okay. Two. Genius is born, not paid. Mm, Morrissey. Nope, that's wild. Oh! <laughs> Life became a strange hallucination, and I would talk myself through each day as one would nurse a dying friend. Wild. Morrissey. Shit. 
I think I need to I need to go with my gut and then go do the opposite. I need to do the Costanza thing. <laughs> Our arguments are to be avoided. They are always vulgar and often convincing. I feel like vulgar is a Morrissey word. I think he's used vulgar in more than one sentence, like more than one song. So I'm gonna say Morrissey. Oh, that's wild. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Bio- biography lends to death a new terror. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to explain my logic, but then make my guess the opposite. Okay. So say it one more time. Biography lends to death a new terror. So to me, that sounds like too old-ish to be Morrissey, and it sounded like a little bit more wild. But since I'm oppositing my guess, it's going to be Morrissey. Okay, you're wrong again. <laughs> oh, I can't do anything right. So you have, you have one right so far. Usually, right. I'm, I feel like, honestly, in the past, we've done games where I've done suspiciously well, and it feels like rigged. So now we all know that this is not rigged. Yeah. <laughs> the games are never rigged. All right. I think we're halfway now. You got one. One correct. So best you can do is seven. I already won. Yeah, you already won. All right. Masculinity is marked out by a million intolerably exhaustive guidelines. Wild. Morrissey. <laughs> what the, the- fuck? The How black... do you fit that into a song? It's from his. It's from his biography. It's from his autobiography. Mm, okay. The blackboard sky of London makes everyone shrivel and walk with a hump. Wild. <laughs> That's worse. <laughs> this is starting to become like you know. So bad. It's like when you flip a coin and it's not coming out fifty-fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always like to know everything about my new friends and nothing about my old ones. Morrissey. <laughs> Wild. Wild. Man, this just keeps um, going. The blaze of the May sun falls on curtained doorways and shuttered houses, and all of my questions paralyze actions. Wild. <laughs> nope. Uh, Dude, just, what? I think uh, I don't know Morrissey or Wild like <laughs> well enough because I'm like that sounds too good to be Morrissey. <laughs> that sounds too old to be okay. Wild. America had often been discovered before Columbus, but it had always been hushed up. Wild. Okay, you got you got a second one, number two. You got it. Uh, finally. All right, At last one. Not going one for twelve. <laughs> last one for redemption. The muddy. Black pools of legal precision are insufferably overdone. Morrissey. You got it. Okay, three. That's you got one. You got 25%. Three out of 12. I thought 25%. I <laughs> uh, guess I need to study up on my Morrissey and Wild. I thought the last one kind of sounded like he would say that about some sort of like embittered fallout from his rock star career or something. Yeah. But anyways, not not too bad, but pretty bad. <laughs> it's not always the way it is that like because the Smiths' actual period of activity is only like four years, right? Yeah, it's pretty quick. So it's like I feel like all rock stars, like if they live long enough, it's like this story of of fame to the moon, and then the rest of their life is like legal, like. <laughs> I should get credit for that, or I should, you know, get paid for that, or fighting their band members, or uh, God knows what. Yeah, just drama. With the exception of Rush. No drama in Rush. Yeah. Uh, 
All right. Well, obviously, I need to study up on my Oscar Wilde. So, I mean, I'll wait until your report, but I'm excited <laughs> because ever, you know, seriously, since like the song Cemetery Gates, that's like one of those songs where it's like it does like sell you on like something that you should read. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds profound. Yeah. Just from the name. <laughs> can you think can you think of another rock star or whatever where it's like or you know, a lyricist or something where it's like you could compare them to an author in that way? Or just like, you know, they are inspired by them so much that they like maybe either mm. jack their style or, you know, whatever. That's that sort of thing. Yeah, like a music kind of crossover. Yeah. Um well, going back to Rush, we all know that like Neil Peart wrote a lot of the lyrics for Rush songs and he definitely lifted things from like fantasy, like token and sci-fi and stuff like that. Um, I can't compare him to one author, but he's definitely a sort of like, you know, paperback in your back pocket type of guy where it's like then he writes the lyrics, to, you know, like Cygnus X1. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's definitely literary influence in rock. I mean, 2112 is based on the Ayn Rand book Anthem. Yep. And I read the Ayn Rand book Anthem because of 2112. Um, let's see. Who, what, can you think of any other? No, rock? it's hard. It's, it's hard because that one, that one's like, you know, there, there are ones where it's like there's a connection for maybe a certain song or maybe a couple songs, but I, I feel like you know, it was more of like admiration, like across the board where, I don't know, it, it's mentioned a lot or, you know, he takes pictures with the, with the book or whatever. And then, you know, maybe his, his style, uh, if not like directly save, alluding to it is kind of also similar. save this for your report. Like, don't answer me this now, but for like a, a topic of discussion later is sort of like, I feel like wild is one of those people where it's like, I don't know what his body of work is. I don't know if he's a novelist. I don't know if he's a poet. I don't know like what he is. And I, and it's also one of those things where it's like, without even doing any investigation, I don't even know where to start. So maybe you can help me with that in your report, but I won't, I won't cover it all, but I am going to cover one part that I had no idea about and you probably didn't either. So we'll, you can look forward to it. <laughs> okay. I'll look forward to that. Um, Speaking of looking forward to things, I will just dive right into my shitty book report. I was saying to you, I think that this one's going to be pretty short for me, but then again, I always feel like I'm going to be short-winded and end up talking for half an hour, so I guess that's why podcasts work. Yeah. Um, so I'm not – I don't really have any, like, setup for questions or whatever. I'm just going to dive right in and say my novel this week is the 1939 Raymond Chandler novel, The Big Sleep. Have you ever read this? Yes, I have read that. You've read The Big Sleep? Yep. Tell me what you remember about The Big Sleep, because I'm actually going to talk a lot about this stuff. I'm not going to talk as much about the book, because I'm going to talk about other things about how this book was brought to me. And another thing that isn't exactly a glowing review of The Big Sleep, tell me what you remember about it, because I don't remember that much. <laughs> okay, I know. I, I remember opening scene it's it's around like a pool or whatever mm -hmm. and he meets like maybe the daughter of the person who he's working for as the gumshoe or whatever and he's either after pictures or something or he has pictures yeah. as a clue yeah and 
maybe there's like a spurned lover or something who's like blackmailing the father. Is that is that sort yeah, of Yeah, it's like this whole thing that and th- like the funny thing about this, like me covering the big sleep right now is it it all I didn't really think about it too much. But you did just summarize like the beginning basically is like, so Philip Marlowe, this is the first novel to to have this character that Chandler developed over many novels called Philip Marlowe. And you can even look up like, you know, Philip Marlowe, the character has his own Wikipedia page and some like novels you'll see in bookstores like a Philip Marlowe novel or, you know, whatever. And he's in a lot of short stories and he's in a lot of, you know, novels and stuff like that. And have you you seen the long goodbye? The movie? Yeah. I have not. Cause that's, that's a Philip Marlowe like movie with Elliot Gould and it rules. Okay. Well, yeah, this also, there's going to be a little bit of movie talk in mine as well, because the big sleep becomes a movie. And also this is also, this is, I feel like I'm just getting this kind of like Americana gumshoe stuff thrown at me because last night my wife and I watched Chinatown. Have you seen Chinatown? I have not. And it's just, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Shameful shameful that I haven't. Yeah. You should check out Chinatown just because it's sort of, it, in a weird way, like I said, I'm, I'm trashing the big sleep a little bit by saying I don't remember that much about it. But this whole to me, this whole genre of like he's the American private eye and there's like, you know, infidelity and blah, blah, blah and guns and whatever and spying and whatever. It's all summed up in Chinatown. Just go watch Chinatown. And then <laughs> you might not have to read like five or six books, <laughs> but at the same time, it does give you good context. So also, if you love that. And you love the environment and everything and, and that genre, then if you watch Chinatown, I feel like it'll give you really good context. Like you'll be able to visualize everything more. Um, so, yeah, The Big Sleep, Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe is like this not very forthcoming gumshoe, aren't they all? And he always is like keeping the information like close to his chest, kind of like Jack Nicholson's character in Chinatown. And you're right. It's like there's this guy who hires him to be a private investigator because he has a like uh, out of control daughter. And then there's like all the, there's like a whole list of people who are like lovers and ex lovers and daughters and whatever, all these people in this family. And he never really has a full grip on who exactly he's working for and all this stuff. There's a big controversy about naked photos of one of the daughters. And like she is caught up in this scheme with a bookseller who's also part of like some, you know, underground network of he's distributing pornography in the in the 30s. So it's like, oh, like all these like very controversial sort of things. Um and he writes it in this book and what's okay. So obviously the big sleep, this is a type of book where I wouldn't want to go through the plot points. Even if I did know everything about this book, I wouldn't want to go through the plot points because it's one of those ones that it's just a yarn that you read. And I wouldn't want to spoil the end for anyone because that's the whole thing. You know, like you're finding out as you go along, what is really going down. Yeah. Um. So I want to talk a little bit about, just me reading about this book and the production of it and some like cool little like quirks and facts. The first thing is that (laughs) it's kind of funny. I was reading on the Wikipedia, Raymond Chandler, he apparently was famous for, he had written all of these short 
um, stories in literary magazines. That's how he started out. That's how a lot of authors started out back in the day. You write yeah. like all these different, you know, little shorts and stuff like that. And apparently the big sleep along with many of his other novels, a few of his other novels were basically, he would take like three of his already published short stories and, and sometimes actually copy and paste them. Like <laughs> actually, like when the word copy and paste meant copy and paste, that's what he was what what he was doing and he was like just changing character names and stuff like that and there's like a few like sentences and lines and everything that's like exactly the same so that's kind of interesting and another byproduct that the you know internet sleuths on wikipedia i don't know if there's more of a source for that than just wikipedia but apparently there is like stuff in the big sleep. There's this one thing in the big sleep that happens. I'm not ruining anything, you know, by telling uh, telling you this if if you want to read the book. But there's one thing that happens in the book that actually is a dead end. There's a scene where Marlowe is investigating everything, and one of like the butlers or something for this rich family. He drives his car into a river or something, and he's dead. But but the police determine that he was, you know, murdered. Basically, he was hit on the head before he drove his car into the river. And that never becomes a plot point ever again <laughs> in the story. And so now this this propels me on to the next part of talking about this, because one of the reasons why The Big Sleep stands out to me and one of the reasons why I read it, one, I have a friend who's a big Raymond Chandler fan. So he, I, we wanted to read it. You know, he just was reading it at the time. I said, I'll read this gumshoe book. It's also one of those things that's so easy to read. You know, it's like, you know, two days, three days a week or something like that. Yeah. But another thing that attracted me to The Big Sleep is that I always knew. Uh, do you know who, what legendary writer may have been involved with the screenplay of the 1946 film? 46 mm -hmm. and it's and it's not someone who you would think like oh had a hollywood career man i don't know <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know trumbo trump well trumbo i was thinking was, was hollywood but yeah yeah i don't expect you to know but it's totally out of left field and i remember researching this about him being like what uh briefly mr william faulkner nice went to hollywood and wrote a few pictures <laughs> so he was on a writing team of three people, William Faulkner, Lee Brackett, and Jules Firthman, Firthman or whatever. 1946, they write The Big Sleep. And uh, going back to that idea of how there were loose ends in Raymond Chandler's novel, it's actually a famous story. And it was revealed later in letters from Raymond Chandler's, you know, life and his documents and stuff. When they were writing the movie, they wrote to him and they were like, can you tell us about this? Like, because they were they're trying to put the movie together, you know, like they're trying to, you know, like make it like the book. But they're doing a bunch of other stuff to kind of like, you know, adapt it. And they say, explain the butler to us like like he died and then it never came up again. And it, and uh, Ch Chandler wrote a letter to a friend and he was like such and such. They at this like, you know, the Hollywood team asked me about the butler and I don't know. I don't know. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize that I did that. <laughs> There's just an open ended thing in the middle of the in the middle of the of the yeah. book. So I, di I didn't know I couldn't do that. Yeah, I didn't. I, didn't, <laughs> I couldn't do that, officer. Um, so. Yeah, that, that's another like that's such a funny story, you know, like we always we high we hold authors in such high regard. But really, if you just ask them point by point what's going on, they're like, I don't know.
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I copied and pasted it, you know, from three different short stories. Yeah. And I, and I actually would love to track down those three different short stories. Uh, cause you know, it's separately. Sends, yeah. yeah. You know, there, there's, you know, it's, you know, put together a bunch yeah. of different ways. Um, so that's one cool story from the big sleep. Another cool story about it that, um, some people might not know you get taught about this a lot in, um, film school. Do you know what I mean when I say pre-code Hollywood? Pre-code. Pre-code. No, definitely not. Okay. Do you know the era in Hollywood that was sort of, that was called like the McCarthy era or like when people. Yeah, were, that's, yeah. that's what I was talking about with Trumbo. Right. Well, he, yeah, people he was, were. He was blacklisted. Yeah, people were, there was like this blacklist and people were being accused of being communists and whatever and all this horrible things. Um, That's not exactly 100% related to what I'm going to talk about, but it was an era within this era. Um, So what's interesting about The Big Sleep, another thing about what's funny about going from novel to movie, especially with Faulkner on the team and everything like that, is that there's also this wrench in the works called the motion picture picture production code um which was kind of enacted by motion picture studios from wikipedia here so i mean 1934 to 1968 and what pre-code hollywood and post-code hollywood or code hollywood means is that before this code before 1934 movies were raunchy you know like it's not a new invention that sex sells i mean everyone knows that you know shakespeare knew that so Ooh, I think we have a guest on the podcast. Yeah, I think we <laughs> <laughs> um, So, the, yeah, pre-code, ba- like, you know, movies were raunchy. So basically, you know, there's tons of movies from the 30s and stuff that it's like, wow, that's like crazy inappropriate. And there's like sex in it and, you know, criminals and, and all these different things. And eventually in 1934, they kind of created this thing called the Motion Picture Production Code, which was rules for what you could and couldn't do on screen a moral code um obviously something invented in 1934 would be so ridiculously out of date that it's like embarrassing at this point you know there were pre-code do's and don'ts uh proposed you know some really you know really crazy bullshit like you shouldn't show white slavery but you can show black slavery um don't ridicule the clergy (laughs) <laughs> you know, like the church yeah. and stuff like that. Um, and also really generic stuff that people had to get around, like don't venerate, you know, don't, it can't, like they didn't want to make movies where it's like the bad guy wins, mm-hmm. you know, like vener- <laughs> veneration of criminals and stuff like that. So a lot of, when you study in film history, a lot of interesting things came out of this code because obviously people slipped around the censorship. But what's, g- getting back into the big sleep, the big sleep, is code so that basically means that they were following these rules so you know faulkner is on this team of three writers they're putting this production together but the big sleep as i told you has some racy stuff in it you know philip marlowe is investigating you know the evidence is naked pictures of this woman uh there's sex there's like you know pornography trafficking and all this other stuff so they have to make this movie where it's like the book is you know probably two times or three times raunchier than the movie you know there's there's homosexual relationships in the big sleep in the novel uh you know there's hints at it there's you know these two men and and their drama and obviously in the movie they were like no no homosexuality no anything 
you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's really interesting how it shakes out. Like if you wanted to go one step further, that's why I was saying I'm not going to talk about the book. I'm going to talk about the legacy of this book. If you wanted to go one step further, read the book. And then, you know, in in the movie and they weren't doing like brilliant adaptations back then either. They were trying to follow it pretty faithfully. That's probably why they wrote to him and asked about that butler. It's like you can recognize things from the book. And then it's like, wait a second. This is the scene where she's supposed to be taking naked pictures and it's like she's sitting on a chair in a bathrobe <laughs> <You know? laughs> like like stupid stuff like that and it's like wow okay like you know the, the you, it, it's a good example of how they were like trying to restrict themselves mm-hmm. um because the book is obviously much raunchier than the movie i uh i have a one-star review i, I i'm like i said i don't have much to say about this book other than if you want a rip roaring gumshoe story about you know betrayal and obviously you're gonna find out who marlo's really working for um that's like the whole chinatown theme as well you can check out the big sleep um i also wanted to send you a picture mark okay. um if you check the chat of our recording platform uh this is the first edition cover which i find incredibly ugly remember when we used to talk about bad covers that's the first edition really (laughs) that's the first edition cover i will tweet a picture of this this goes on the bad cover (laughs) hall of fame to me i mean it literally it says it says the big sleep and what looks like you know college like you know like the you know the college um, yeah varsity font varsity font <laughs> it says the big sleep in varsity font with a big brown stain behind it by Randy yeah. chandler it's like this you know whoever designed this is you know obviously not at the faulkner level i don't know what they were thinking um so yeah i'll jump right, right into my one star review i think i actually kept it as short as i imagined that i would for the first time in forever so that's a, that's a good sign um my one star review is from Goodreads from Jessica. And I think this is, you know, one star reviews often reveal things that are wrong with the book, but then the things that are right for the for the book, if you're looking for that sort of thing. So Jessica says, not my kind of book. I only finished it because it was fairly short and I hoped it would get better. The narrator reminded me the narrator reminded me of one of those stereotypical voiceover private eye shows that are really over the top, but where the detective himself has no emotions about anything and spends time with a lot of people who make threats. He and the other characters talked in so much slang, sarcasm, and hints I didn't know what they were talking about a good part of the time. Add that together with a lot of murders no one seems to care much about, and a bunch of ridiculous female characters. And yeah, not my cup of tea. I would have to say, Jessica, that I agree with your one star review, but I don't know if I would give it one stars. Maybe I would give it three or three or something like that because it was still fun to read. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're looking for that, hey, mister, can you investigate my, you know, my infidelity or whatever? Check out The Big Sleep. It's it's a, it's definitely one of the classics of that genre. So that's why I was talking about Chinatown and stuff like, yeah, it's it's up there. I think Jessica summed it up pretty well there, though. (laughs) That is kind of the setup for a lot of them. So this is the only one I've read of that, like, kind of Marlowe series. So I've read The Big Sleep, haven't seen the movie, but I've, like I said, I saw The Long Goodbye, and I know that's another book. Uh, And it's pretty funny, like, the Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe is, like, pretty pretty amazing. He's just like, um, and yeah, this is uh, Ross and Monica's dad and friends, if you want to visualize that and then dh uh, him 25 uh, years yeah uh, okay. <laughs> that's him What's his name and again? elliot gould and Elliot so gould. 
the in in the movie he is literally he mumbles the whole time and he's literally never without like a cigarette in his mouth he's always smoking like it's right. it's almost like comical to right. point where no, he's yeah. like that's he, uh that's uh chinatown too yeah yeah it's great well it's a good, Phillip, it's a good movie the 1946 big sleep is uh philip marlowe is played by humphrey bogart okay so i could see Elliot, that yeah as well Elliot gould uh sharing the same care i'm sure i'm sure that's probably on his list of bragging rights yeah i played the same character as humphrey bogart yeah it's awesome <laughs> sounds good maybe i'll uh get it read another one of those someday yeah i think it's a good sort of like i don't know i i think you know i would like it i think the mood that it fits is like i'm going to the beach or something like that okay you know I'm, you're not going to think too hard it's just going to be smooth that sounds good yeah smooth like a pilsner smooth like a pilsner all right so i'm going to jump right into mine there's no surprises here. Mm. Oscar Wilde. I'm going to start out with some questions anyways. Okay. Do you remember being a moody or angsty teenager, writing stuff down in your notebook, maybe a diary if you had one, uh, and how embarrassing the expressions of whatever feelings you were having back then were, <laughs> no, no matter what they were about? Yes. Yes, yeah. I do. <laughs> Just awful, awful writing, you know, to like just even pass over like how self-absorbed or whatever, but it's just the writing itself was very bad. <laughs> I'm sure. But also, have you ever read something that you thought was fiction, but then discovered pretty quickly that it wasn't? Yes. That's a pretty interesting thing, right? You're, you kind of, cause that's exactly what happened to me with this Oscar Wilde um, short, you know, story or short thing that i was reading i was like oh he's talking about being an author it's like or is this you know he's mm -hmm. he's assuming this mind state of someone who's in this spot and then i'm like oh let me let me double check what's going on and oh that's that's just him writing about his own experiences mm. so this week i read de profundis which means from the depths Okay, De Profundis. So that whole, and it's Oscar Wilde, so you know, that whole ang awful angsty stuff I was talking about before does not apply mm -hmm. here. Because if you're Os Oscar Wilde, you know, you write that stuff down and it's clever and beautiful. Clever, yeah. What age was he? Do you know? Have you oh, th this is uh, this is right before his death, so I don't know. I, f I forget how old he was when he died. But mm, okay. So this is actually, it's not a novel. It's not a short story. It's actually a letter that mm. Oscar Wilde penned to his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas, while he was in prison. Mm. So oh. that's where From the Depths comes from. And yeah, I didn't know the whole background here when I picked this book up, but it's right there in the first few paragraphs of his Wikipedia page. <laughs> and I'm going to just read that one paragraph. At the height of his fame and success, while the importance of being earnest, which is 1895, was mm -hmm. still being performed in London, Wilde prosecuted the Marquess of Queensbury for criminal libel. The Marquess was the father of Wilde's lover, Lord Alfred Douglas. The libel trial unearthed evidence that caused Wilde to drop his charges and led to his own arrest and trial for gross indecency with men. After mm -hmm. two more trials, he was convicted and sentenced to two years hard labor 
the maximum penalty and was jailed from 1895 to 1897. Hmm. So this was written when he was in jail in, uh, I think, Reading, uh, in the UK. Hmm. So, and so to add to this and make it even more interesting, he served this sentence right before the 1898 Prison Act uh, made conditions a lot better for prisoners. So okay. essentially, reading into some of the history here, he, you know, slept on planks. He slept on like the floor, you know, no mattress or whatever. He mm. was isolated in a cell, not allowed to talk to anyone, even when he was in the uh, the yard for their mm. daily kind of thing. And apparently in the first month, he was strapped to a treadmill for six hours a day <laughs> at, a, at an incline. My God. So it said 6,000 feet of incline each day, five minute rest every 20 minutes. So really just a miserable, torturous time in his life, you know? And then right after that, they give everyone bed and clothes. And... Yeah. <laughs> wow. So he wasn't allowed to write like novels or plays or essays or anything of the sort, you know, they didn't give him materials to do that. And he just, you know, but he was able to eventually kind of strike up a deal um, to sidestep these rules. And the way they did that was that he would write in the form of a letter to the outside, because apparently like the, they were very strictly following the prison regulations. And apparently these regulations did not put limits on how long a letter should be. Mm. And also unfinished letters could be taken home when leaving the prison. So basically what was produced at the end of his sentence, you know, when he was released was a 50,000 word letter that was written over the course of the last four months of his stay. There was his sentence. So like sort of like a, like a novella of his awful life. Essentially. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, because, because of this structure, it's not a hundred percent fluid mm-hmm. and and of course another part of it is that this is like essentially an extremely complex love letter because it was addressed to a man uh mm-hmm. yeah alfred douglas uh so also it's kind of you know it's not something we were supposed to see <laughs> it was supposed to be private but it was right. you know yep. released and i i apologize for intruding but i, I <laughs> yeah. I didn't know until I didn't know the history until yeah, I actually I saw it. I like recently some friends were talking on Facebook of all places that it's like uh, somebody's like releasing Prince's music, like his unreleased music. And a oh, friend of sucks. mine, uh, a friend of mine was like, no, it's like not right to do that. And I was like, it's like for all of human history, we've done that. Like you can literally go to the library right now and rent out a book of Mark Twain's love letters. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just over once you're dead. Like, especially because it also has to do with the decision makers down the line, right? Like, yeah. If my great great grandson wants to publish something that's going to get him, you know, money, it's going to happen. Yeah. Prince didn't even want his music uh, streamed, he didn't even want it digital. And that happened too. Hey. Yeah. So it sucks. So you're dead. Yeah. You got no say anymore. That's the <laughs> estate. So what's left here with uh, De Profundis, it's an extremely honest, you know, sometimes frantic, uh, very bitter, sorrowful. Sorrow is a b- word that comes up about a hundred times. Uh, maybe 5% hopeful accounts of where Wilde's, you know, where his head was at during this time of torment. 
And it's, you know, what, what have you read from him? Like a uh, picture of Dorian, the portrait of Dorian Gray? Or yeah, the that's it. Pic- that's it. The picture of Dorian Gray. It's, okay. That's definitely it. But a damn good book, if yeah. I may say so. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, I read that and also I've read that and also the importance of being earnest. And now I've read this. Um, but, you know, even just with that, I know can get a feel for what his style is. And, you know, when you think of him, it's witticisms, it's, um, you know, clever, florid language, stuff like that. But this and, is, and Morrissey. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's this is so far removed from what he's known for, mostly known for on the surface. Uh, you know, the turns of phrase and that sort of thing. Instead, it it takes the shape of more of like a philosophical piece of art um, about art and about love. And I guess ab- about uh, if you read kind of between the lines, it can read as an account of the relationship between Wilde and uh, Douglas, mm-hmm. maybe with some accusations in there. So like I said, it makes it an extremely complex uh, love letter pretty much mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah wasn't meant for us to read but <laughs> i'm gonna read some passages here <laughs> sorry uh, in advance oscar yeah let me At just read like uh, let me just read the uh beginning de profundis suffering is one very long moment we cannot divide it by seasons we can only record its moods and chronicle their return with us, time itself does not progress. It revolves. It seems to circle round one center of pain, the paralyzing immobility of a life, every circumstance of which is regulated after an unchangeable pattern, so that we eat and drink and lie down and pray, or kneel at least for prayer, according to the inflexible laws of an iron formula. This immobile quality that makes each dreadful day in the very minutest detail like its brother seems to communicate itself to those external forces, the very essence of whose existence is ceaseless change, of seed time or harvest, of the reapers bending over the corn or the grape gatherers threading through the vines, of the grass in the orchard made white with broken blossoms or strewn with fallen fruit. Of these we know nothing and can know nothing. For us, there is only one season, the season of sorrow. Wow. So, yeah. From the depths. <laughs> that that um, in itself should have been a Smith song. They should yeah, have exactly. lifted it right up. I could have could have just sang that with different kind of a pitch. Mm-hmm. I want to read that, and I would like to read one more section here from like maybe three quarters through, closer to the end. Mm-hmm. Just found it, you know. There's a lot of powerful powerful parts in here, and also a large part of it. Um, like I said, it's kind of frantic. It's kind of scattered a little bit uh I'll, I'll, part of it is also him kind of coming to terms with religion mm-hmm. or possibly finding some sort of spirituality and also at the same time comparing himself to jesus i think at one point nice. so you know he's a little bit all over the place but it's, it's under, understandable with what hell it sounds like you know yeah i mean if, if we've all had a tiny taste of quarantine yeah you know amplify yeah, exactly. I know that that first part could be like a very exaggerated response to quarantine if you're, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going with there because some, <laughs> obviously a lot of people are really having a hard time. I'm going to shut my mouth and, and open it again just to read this part. 
To each of us, different fates are meted out. My lot has been one of public infamy, of long imprisonment, of misery, of ruin, of disgrace, but I am not worthy of it, not yet at any rate. I remember that I used to say that I thought I could bear a real tragedy if it came to me with purple pall and a mask of noble sorrow, but that the dreadful thing about modernity was that it put tragedy into the raiment of comedy so that the great reality seemed commonplace or grotesque or lacking in style. It is quite true about modernity. It has probably always been true about actual life. It is said that all martyrdom seemed meaner to the looker on. The 19th century is no exception to the rule. Everything about my tragedy has been hideous, mean, repellent, lacking in style. Our very dress makes us grotesque. We are the zanies of sorrow. We are clowns whose hearts are broken. We are specially designed to appeal to the sense of humor. On November 13th, 1895, I was brought down here from London. From two o'clock till half past two on that day, I had to stand on the center platform of Clapham Junction in convict dress and handcuffed for the whole world to look at. I had been taken out of the hospital ward without a moment's notice being given to me. Of all possible object, objects, I was the most grotesque. When people saw me, they laughed. Each train as it came up swelled the audience. Nothing could exceed their amusement. That was, of course, before they knew who I was. As soon as they had been formed, they laughed still more. For half an hour, I stood there in the gray November rain, surrounded by a jeering mob. For a year after that was done to me, I wept every day at the same hour and for the same space of time. That is not such a tragic thing as possibly it sounds to you. To those who are in prison, tears are part of every day's experience. A day in prison on which one does not weep is a day on which one's heart is hard, not a day on which one's heart is happy. Well, now I'm really beginning to feel more regret for the people who laughed than for myself. Of course, when they saw me, I was not on my pedestal. I was in the pillory. But it is a very unimaginative nature that only cares for people on their pedestals. A pedestal may be a very unreal thing. A pillory is a terrific reality. They should have known also how to interpret sorrow better. I have said that behind sorrow, there is always sorrow. It were wiser still to say that behind sorrow, there is always a soul. And to mock at a soul in pain is a dreadful thing. In the strangely simple economy of the world, people only get what they give. And to those who have not enough imagination to penetrate the mere outward of things and feel pity, what pity can be given that save of scorn? Wow, that was like particularly vivid to me because I've been to Clapham Junction. <laughs> really? I mean, obviously the modern Clapham Junction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. That's like a train station? Yeah. Wow. But yeah, did you have any idea that, that that was anything to do with his life? No, of course not. I mean, yeah. it's not like there's like a plaque on the wall that says, here stood Oscar Wilde ostracized. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, very powerful sections like that. I really appreciated, I, I really liked his um, section there talking about the, you know, the pedestal versus the pillory and how. Yeah, that's really good. That's like the whole like, you know, that's the whole thing of like comparing yourself to other people's highlight reels and social media and stuff like that. Yeah. I also felt that there was like it was interesting in the beginning when he was talking about like our modern age like is ridiculous and like blah, blah, blah. it's hard to live within your own historical context, you know? 
Yeah. Like he's saying like nothing epic has happened to me because everything is just like cruel and like whatever. And I feel like it's probably, you know, it could feel the same, you know, at any given time. Oh yeah. Yep. The 19th century, 20th century, 21st century. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's a taste of, of what this is like. There are some parts that you may want to skim through if you read it. Just some of the parts of religion are maybe a little weird, but mm-hmm. I was going to bring up, I don't want to read it again. I don't want to read another big section, but there is a part in here where he um, actually has some pretty profound stuff to say about Hamlet. Oh, nice. so I'm going to, cause this is, uh, public domain i'm going mm-hmm. to link you the page numbers for that so you can take a look at it because oh, you were yeah, freshly definitely. freshly off of reading hamlet and he talks about um what is it rosencrantz and gildenstein gildenstern right. uh he has a he has a lot of he has an interesting section about that so I'll, i'm gonna send that to you and i want to hear what maybe your thoughts are someday have you ever heard of the uh i think it's like a play and a movie no it's a play rosencrantz and gildenstern are dead yeah i never knew what that i I like had always forgot what that referred to it's like a play by this guy tom stoffert i'm literally looking at the wikipedia right now yeah i'm not pulling this out of my ass but it's uh, like an existent it's a you know an absurdist existential tragic comedy by tom stoffert and i think it's just about how in hamlet there's just these two guys that are dead and it's not really important to the story. But then this play is about like them being dead. Okay. Um, So it's like, it's the idea of like taking like, Oh, those two characters were sweet to side and we're going to take it from like their perspective. Okay. So Um, we should, we should do a play about the uh, guy who dies in the car in the big sleep. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so true. The man in what the car is dead or whatever. Yeah. We'll find out his name. He has a name. (laughs) So uh, to wrap this up here, um, another interesting part of uh, this story and the historical context for it in his, in Wilde's life is that I believe after he was released, he continued his, uh, I don't know, I don't. He continued his relationship uh, with uh, Alfred Doug, Lord Alfred Douglas, mm-hmm. to like the dismay of uh, both families, and also Wilde was married to a woman at this time, mm-hmm. um, so that you know made everything even more complicated. But you know, like I said, there's five percent hopeful here. Uh, so at one point he writes of his plans for like the next 18 months after he's released. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's like talking about a year and a half, which is interesting because 18 months after he was released, he died. Mm -hmm. I think of men of meningitis, maybe I think I just looked it up. It might've been meningitis, but yeah, he passed away shortly after his release, but he stated when he was talking about the future, he said, uh, you know, if I'm not if I'm not allowed to write beautiful books, I may at least read beautiful books. And what joy can be greater? Hey, yeah, I agree. <laughs> so yeah, De Profundis. It's an interesting read. I would say you can skim through the religious parts. Um, I didn't. I, I 
went i i read the whole thing but i don't know i didn't take away as much from that so as far as a one-star review from Barbara, she says, tedious. I guess he had plenty of time to spill his guts. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, like, Barbara. <laughs> could you imagine, just like even that's that's really cruel. It's like, you know, it's taking reading someone's private prison. private yeah. <laughs> like prison diary and then giving it one star, you know. Do better. <laughs> like, go back. <laughs> Boring. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the one star reviews on, you know, Diary of Anne Frank, pretty much. I know, right? So, I don't have anything for the end here, but uh, do you have any Pilsner left? I just took my final sip. Oh, I was going to say, see if you can finish it before I do the wrap-up thing. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes, I can, I can, I can finish it. Ah, <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of shitty book reports. You can find us once a week, pretty much on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR, the podcast. You can also email us at Gmail, SBR, the podcast at gmail.com. Send us your comments, suggestions, corrections, reading lists, you know, whatever you're feeling. And uh, we'll see you next time. See ya.